It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 223. We're talking about strength training promotion in the rehab setting and beyond. Physical inactivity is a major health problem worldwide and is the number four global risk factor for mortality, according to the World Health Organization, right behind high blood pressure, tobacco use, and elevated blood sugar. When surveyed, over 90% of adults report that they know regular exercise is beneficial to their health. And similarly, 82% of adults report that resistance training is health promoting. Despite this knowledge, less than one in five adults in the world meet both the conditioning and resistance training guidelines that have been in place for over 15 years. While getting more people to exercise is far more complex than just telling folks to just do it, it does seem like people are more likely to start exercising and keep doing it if their doctor recommends it. For example, a physician needs to prescribe exercise to only 12 patients to get one individual to start exercising and keep doing it for a year. Between the low participation rates and the high potential benefit of having healthcare professionals recommend exercise, many national and international organizations have decreed that more people in the healthcare system should be recommending exercise, and this includes physical therapists. Often regarded as exercise experts, physical therapists have a unique opportunity to not only recommend exercise to their patients, but also show them how to do it. Do physical therapists have a unique skill set or opportunity to get their patients exercising? Are PTs even recommending exercise to their patients? And if so, how should they do it? All this and more on episode 223 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Before we get into our sponsors, I wanted to let you know that for the entire month of April, one of our coaches, Claire Zai, and Dr. Alyssa Olenek are running a fundraiser called Load Women. Load Women ultimately aims to increase access for women in both sports and science. The main event is a virtual deadlift pledge where you pledge dollar per pound or dollar per kilogram against your heaviest deadlift pulled during the entire month. You can also get involved through the weekly events or by buying apparel, all of which are listed on the Load Women website. Last year, they raised over $14,000 for the Perry Initiative and the Women's Sports Foundation. Check out the website that's linked in the description below. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13mm thick, 4-inch wide belt for powerlifting like me, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. I bought and paid for a new belt from them last year and been very impressed with both the performance and quality. All products are made in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high quality, versatile clothing for inside and outside the gym for both men and women. I'm absolutely in love with their fleet pants and core shorts. If you know me, you know I'm pretty picky about the stuff I train in, and both of these items are super comfortable and super durable with the type of training that I do. I've also been wearing their Rise Tee in and outside of the gym, which fits better than more expensive shirts I've tried before. Viore also sources sustainable materials for their products and offsets their carbon footprint 100%. Head over to their website, viore.com backslash barbell, to get 20% off your first order. All right, we're here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm with the eighth most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Derek Miles. What's going on, man? I feel like some people must be retiring because I'm like slowly creeping up along the way. The, some of the new bloods have to be uh, pushing me down or else I'm aging really well. That's what I'm saying. I think you're just aging well. Like as you grow into, you know, adulthood further, you know, you're just amassing more cachet and, and more style. And then, you know, you're making the transition from daddy to dad. And I think that's, you know, we, sh- <laughs> we should recognize you're getting in the niche. Yeah, we should recognize your promotion. So um, first off, uh, 
before we get into this podcast, uh, we have new content on the website, some from Dr. Derek Miles himself. We've got ankle sprain uh, guidelines. We've got uh, how to train for power in the rehab setting, new articles from Austin on liver function tests uh, and exercise and how those interact. I've got an article on headaches and exercise, all that and more on the website. We also have new YouTube videos up, uh, including full length Q&As from Los Angeles and Atlanta. Uh, That was our most recent seminar. Speaking of seminars, we have a bunch of live in-person seminars coming up. Uh, in two weeks' time, we'll be in Brooklyn, New York for a two-day health and performance seminar. That's with Dr. Baraki and myself and the rest of the crew. Uh, our pain and rehab team has two brand new seminars listed on the website. One is in Bozeman, Montana. So if you're on a Yellowstone kick, definitely sign up for that one. That's going to be in June. And they're also going to be at Monarch Athletic Club in Los Angeles in September of this year. So you can find those uh, in the description below. And then finally, we will be at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California for another two-day health and performance seminar in October. And for our uh, South Pacific contingent, if you're in Australia, we will be uh, in Sydney in January of 2024. So again, that's all linked in the description below. Uh, our app is recently updated. Um, so we've got some new features on that. If you're a blue bubble person for all of our green bubble Android users, we are actively working on this. It's it's going to be months, guys. And as soon as it beta testing is is available, I will put the word out. And I assume that my DMs will actually explode. That just, just completely overtaken, overrun by Android users. So stay tuned for that. But it's going to be months. Um, and last but not least, uh, we are finally clearing out uh, the rest of our merchandise. We just dropped uh, the university line about a month ago, and I think it's almost gone. But if you want to rep Barbell Medicine in the gym, uh, we still have some some stuff there. So uh, would appreciate that if you want to rep us in the gym. Derek, do you have you've got some Barbell Medicine gear, right? I have plenty of Barbell Medicine gear. I've been with you guys for five years now. I can <laughs> supply my own wardrobe at this point. Do people do people ask you like? Hey, where'd you get that shirt? Or like, do they know that you're Derek Barbell Medicine? Oh, I recently had someone in the gym come up to me and be like, oh, that's a great shirt. I have one too. I love those guys. And it was actually <laughs> uh, the day that uh, we had dropped the power podcast. I'm like, yeah, they're great. I, I, I'm glad you, you like to listen to their podcast. <laughs> they didn't They didn't put two and two together that you were, in fact, part of the crew. Well, well I feel like even with my uh, social media presence, most of my cooking with adhesions is binging with Babish style where it's all neck down. So, yeah, you're kind of like the, uh, the teacher from Charlie Brown, like, like no yeah. one ever sees your face or like the, the, uh, uh, the nanny from the Muppet babies, like no one, <laughs> they've only seen your extremities, never your face. So we'll have to, we'll have to get some portraits up on this, on the, on our Instagram feed or something. Pretty sure some people even hear the voice as the teacher from peanuts, just nothing but wah, 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 wah. Yeah, right, right. People are like, those are big words. I don't know what he's saying. Uh, I had, I want to tell the world about this. And I told you about this earlier today. This just happened in the gym today. Um, Okay. So this woman uh, was training next to me. Now let's go back like two or three weeks and I was squatting next to her. And for whatever reason, I was lifting heavy, you know, as, as is my nature, but she seemed to be impressed. And she made a comment that, wow, that that was impressive. And I said, thanks. And then I asked her uh, because she was also, she was front squatting, also heavyweight. And I was like, Hey, that's very impressive. Like, what do you, you know, you're an athlete of some sort. What do you do? Are you track star? Are you softball? Like what, you know, field hockey, I, I went through a bunch of sports and she goes, just kept shaking her head and turns out she's a rower, but she undersold it. She undersold this, this, this thing. So I was like, oh, she's a rower. That's great. And I, then I told you, I was like, oh, she's a rower. And, and Derek's like, yep, they tend to be great athletes. Long story short, 
I find out today, this woman is a gold medalist. Like, no joke. She's a gold medalist. And I, so I went up to, I was almost a little peeved. I was like, why didn't you tell me that you were <laughs> a gold medalist? Like, I, I would have taken that compliment a whole lot uh, to heart a whole lot more. That was, yeah, she, turns out she, she won the 200 meter. What, what is it on a boat? It's on a boat. Yeah. Like a single, like a well, single. I believe she races canoe. Oh, okay. So that's different than rowing, but it's still uh, placed in a vessel on the water, propelling yourself using your own force. Okay. Do you, so wait, is there like a is there like a a divide between like crew people and canoe people? Like, am I am I missing something here? Well, I mean, uh, I'll put it in terms you can understand. Is there a divide between F one and NASCAR? Wow. Okay. Yep. Yeah, it's not the same at all. I mean, other than just yeah. automotive racing. You're, so we're, we're, we're back where we need to be now. Yeah, got it. Okay, well, that makes sense. But still, I'm impressed nonetheless. And uh, yeah, I would like to see her though. That we There's rowers in our gym. I would love to see her on an erg because I, I would just take notes. I'm like, wow, that's that technique is probably amazing. I just, I've never seen that in real life, you know? But uh, I, I was curious. I was like, isn't the Olympic training center? We got one in Chula Vista. It's just down south, like 30 minutes south. I'm like, why are you here? Go go there. So fun sidebar for a moment. Even within the sport of rowing, there's two different techniques. So you have sculling where you have two oars and sweep where you have one oar. Okay. And if you watch someone, like the fastest erg times are rarely going to be a rower because – it's pretty rare any of us would train with a stroke rating like beyond what you would see in a boat. So even at the elite levels, it's pretty rare to see more than like 38 strokes per minute. And that's for like a power 10. Whereas if you're trying to break the United States record, the world record in the 500, you're probably pulling it like a 45, 48. You would be likely going for a swim if you tried to do that in a boat. You'd fall out. Yeah, yeah. I've tried yeah. to be on a, on a boat once as a dual oar, but- well, that is way different than erging on a concept two rower. Just if anyone's wondering, like it's much, you're moving all over the place and your hands, hands are, it's just much more coordination. I did not fall out of the boat, but it was not pretty. And I was like, this is much harder than just sitting on a concept two. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen concept two used to have uh, like a, like where both of the things would move like that. Oh, not you, only they still have that. You can hook, uh, all of them up because really part of being in the boat is your slide control. So if one person is coming up the slide faster, the rest of the boat feels it. So this is where the team has to be in sync. And if not, what you end up having is check where the boat just kind of stops and starts, stops and starts, stops and starts. And there's like a noise that if you actually get everyone in rhythm that is i would argue one of the most beautiful noises in all of athletics when the boat is actually just running on the water as opposed to having that breaking moment well we can Bias disagree because about, of a roar, but. yeah we, we can disagree about the greatest sound in sport because for me the greatest sound in sport is a long iron being perfectly struck in the center of the club from the fairway i mean, that's just oh purina but if you are listening to this podcast and you're like, okay, you guys have been talking about rowing for the last five minutes. I would be curious about how to row. I have two excellent tutorials I'm about to post on YouTube from Cassie Neiman. She is our other resident rower and she's been instructing rowers on how to row for some time now. So those are coming out on our YouTube channel. Uh, 
yeah, we'll, we'll have more material coming out on that. All right. Well, let's let's pop into this week's podcast. So this is a preview of a presentation I'm giving um, in Canada. Uh, I'm leaving here fairly soon for that. Uh, basically, the, the title of my presentation is called Strength Training in the Rehab Setting and Beyond. And the idea is that physical therapists are perfectly placed to recommend and implement exercise in their patient population. And I wanted to cover kind of the background, like what are the current exercise participation rates? Why should healthcare providers care about that? And how can they like affect that positively to uh, physical therapists in particular, and then how to do that. So at the end of this podcast, if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm not a physical therapist, I'm not a healthcare provider. I just care about exercise and programming and stuff like that. And you want to learn how to program. I'm going to, that's going to happen at the end of this. I'm going to walk you guys through how we think about programming uh, very specifically. And then, you know, that might be useful. So, all right, let's start out with this. Derek, it, when, cause you're seeing, you're seeing patients still, uh, um, remotely. And I, I know most of them aren't asking you this question, but you have probably, uh, an idea of this in the back of your head. And I know you've looked into this particularly for adolescents off the top of your head. What is the current adherence rate or the current amount of people worldwide that are meeting the exercise guidelines? Um, any, any ideas offhand? It depends on the paper you pull, but somewhere between about 15 and 25%. Uh, so I think you could give the broad stroke of not a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In so many words, not, not a lot. That's true. Um, so yeah, I mean, as mentioned in the intro, physical inactivity is a huge problem worldwide. It's the number four global risk factor for premature mortality, according to the World Health Organization. And again, that's behind high blood pressure, tobacco use, and elevated blood sugar. Uh, Insufficient physical activity predisposes to a wide variety of chronic diseases, including cardio and cerebrovascular disease, metabolic disease, musculoskeletal disorders, frailty, and many others. Rather than labeling people as sedentary, we prefer to characterize individuals who are not meeting the current physical activity guidelines as insufficiently active. Uh, not only we, we're not stigmatizing people as just being sedentary, identifying them as such, it's also more specific as it directly compares an individual's current activity level to the standard, which are the 2018 physical activity guidelines for Americans. So if you're unfamiliar with those, just briefly to, re to review, the current physical activity guidelines are that every individual should complete 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate intensity aerobic physical activity or 75 to 150 minutes per week of vigorous intensity aerobic physical activity or any combination of those two and uh, at least twice per week of resistance training of moderate or greater intensity that involves all major muscle groups um, so interestingly most adults know that exercise is good for them in a survey of over 2,000 U.S. adults, 94% of respondents reported that they know regular exercise is beneficial to their health. And with respect to resistance training specifically, 82% reported that they knew lifting weights was good for them. Despite knowing that exercise and resistance training are good for them, one in four adults worldwide are not meeting the conditioning minimums, whereas three in four adults globally do no resistance training. And it's even worse for adolescents with over 80% of 11 to 16 year olds failing to meet the current aerobic uh, conditioning recommendations. Uh, in a recent meta-analysis of over 3.3 million subjects across 32 different countries, uh, they report that 17.1% of adults and 19.7% of adolescents aged 12 to 17 are meeting both the conditioning and resistance training guidelines. So the take home here is that less than one of every five people worldwide 
are meeting the recommended physical activity guidelines. And these are likely to be overestimates because basically they're either asking people via survey like, hey, how many you know days or minutes per uh, do you usually exercise and how many days per week are you doing this? And people just tend to overestimate how often and how much they're exercising. I've seen some data where they put like an accelerometer on folks and actually correlate that to what they report. <laughs> and in general, um, I, I would be surprised if actually, you know, 17% of adults worldwide were meeting the aerobic training guidelines and the resistance training guidelines. I'd, I'd expect it to be about half of that. Does that seem, uh, seem likely to you? Well, I think if you look at it globally, part of it is how we end up uh, defining a lot of this, because obviously if you work in manual labor or a field type job, you're going to check that box just as a result. And I'm sure we'll get into the distinction between occupational and leisure physical activity, because really where the health benefits seem to show their biggest margins is with leisure physical activity, as opposed to, you know, picking up, uh, boxes and moving them from point A to point B for 14 hours a day. And I would say that these numbers are likely inflated because I agree every time you see the accelerometer data, they're lower than what, uh, what the data says for any type of self-report survey. It's the, uh, I, I think we, I joked with you prior to the podcast that I want to, uh, title this episode. Did you eat your broccoli? A survey of five-year-olds because we all look at it and, and, you know, it's not that there's any kind of nefarious intent behind it. It's just, I think most people overestimate the things that they see as a positive and underestimate their exposure to the negatives. In fact, there are studies that back that up. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, but to summarize this first part, most se- people seem to know that exercise is good for them. Despite this, very few people exercise at all. And of those who exercise, even fewer lift weights. So what can we do about this? It, while increasing exercise participation, both locally and globally is a complex topic, spanning public policy, infrastructure, culture, and social inputs, among others. Many of these things uh, are outside of our immediate control, Uh, but it does seem like healthcare professionals might be able to turn the tide. So can healthcare professionals get more people exercising? Uh, Similar to the survey results finding that most U.S. adults uh, believing that exercise and lifting weights can be beneficial to their health, most physicians actually feel the same way. A 2018 study evaluated physician attitudes towards recommending exercise and results of polling over 400 physicians revealed that on average, they quote, strongly supported participation in exercise and in general did not rank safety as an area of high concern when recommending exercise. While physicians and perhaps other healthcare professionals do not report that safety is of primary concern, nearly 40% of otherwise healthy adults who are not currently exercising agree that they'd increase physical activity if they were not afraid of injury, suggesting that this represents a significant barrier to meeting the exercise targets. Um, This presents an opportunity for healthcare professionals to directly address this barrier to participation, which may lead to increased uptake of exercise by patients. In support of this, a 2012 meta-analysis found that healthcare professionals need to counsel approximately 12 individuals on physical activity to get a single individual to start and sustain an exercise program for one year. And just to put this into context, this represents a greater effectiveness compared to counseling for other lifestyle changes such as smoking cessation, which is estimated to require approximately 35 to 120 individuals to receive advice in order for a single person to quit smoking. Despite all of this, 
less than 16% of Canadian G, uh, GPs, so general practitioners, and less than 10% of American general practitioners, these are physicians uh, usually uh, well, trained in family medicine or internal medicine, actually prescribe exercise to patients. That's not good. So as someone who's been in this exact component of the field, why do you think that is? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you can just go directly to the data and look at what the doctors actually report and invariably they report the same things. One little confidence and knowledge of like how to prescribe exercise, little personal experience with exercising time and effectively reimbursement. So how can they get paid for these things? So Jordan, what are the four barriers that people report for not being able to participate in exercise? Yeah. I mean, so same thing. They, they don't really know what to do. They uh, don't have time. They don't have access, you know, and so on and so on. These are not, you know, unique problems. Uh, there's a lot of overlap there. Uh, the main thing I, that, that is really curious to me, and, and we'll discuss some of the specifics later, though, is there seems to be an overconfidence of healthcare professionals as far as like the knowledge that yeah, I know that exercise is good for folks and I, I know that they're the current guidelines. But then when you ask the healthcare professionals, the current guidelines, very few of them can actually identify them. And it's like, it's okay to say, I, I don't know. And I'd like some help, but it seems like despite knowing that exercise promotion would be helpful to their patient population, not a lot of healthcare professionals are like attuned to do, to do so. Well, but I think there's a little bit of, um, I'm going to use overconfidence, but I don't mean it in a negative way because you've seen like the psychology studies where they ask people to draw a bicycle, something mm -hmm. that we all know the inner workings of, but when they have people do it, something like 20% of the bikes will be functional. And <laughs> I have a feeling that th there's a lot of correlation here and especially within healthcare or within physio, which I can obviously speak more strongly to there have been a host of studies that have come out recently on like recently there was a meta-analysis talking about how if you tried to follow an exercise program from studies talking about like strengthening the quad after an acl reconstruction that you couldn't do it because what constitutes strengthening paradigms like sets reps rest none of that's ever documented Mm -hmm. And what I think it leads to is us in this conversation, like, oh, yes, I strengthen, you strengthen, we all strengthen, yay. But really, like, until we get down to what's in the sausage and what the variables are that really determine that, I think it does breed some overconfidence that we are strengthening or we are doing the thing we think we're doing without the underpinning justification for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's been my biggest knock against like the guidelines, for example. So the, the physical activity guidelines have been out uh, in some form since 1995, right? So originally they were only just aerobic guidelines. And then in 2007, so, you know, over 15 years ago now, uh, they started including resistance training, but nowhere in any of the guidelines, is there any sort of program saying like, and here's an example of what you could do. And here's another example of what you could do if you like these types of exercises or have access to these machines or these implements or whatever, or here's something you could do at home. None of that is in there. And so to the extent you want to blame the guidelines, despite nobody really following the guidelines, the biggest problem is that there's no practical example or like handout material say for like, hey, look, if you're a physician and you want to counsel people on exercise, you want to check the box that like first here, do this assessment where you're you know, effectively figuring out how many people, you know, what kind of exercise they're doing now, and then give them this handout based on their response. 
that's not in there. And it's like, that is germane <laughs> to this behavior change sort of uh, counseling that you're going to have to do. Um, but people, you know, people, physicians in, in this particular case, aren't, aren't even doing that. And so that's my biggest knock against the guidelines. Um, I, I w- if they were there, maybe things would be better. I don't know that to be the case, but that's, that's at least one barrier, I think, to physicians actually recommending exercise in their, in their practices. Well, it's, it's really only been in the past seven-ish years since we've had the meta-analysis come out that are prescriptive. And uh, I think it's uh, Board and uh, Board is the adult. Lazinski is the uh, female or the uh, adolescent recommendations. And they're essentially the same. It's four to five sets of three to 10 reps at greater than 70% one RM with two to three minutes rest in between sets. And you know, hopefully in the next iteration, those will at least be acknowledged as a means of starting. But you know, I, the underlying conversation here is likely going to evolve into the barriers that we erect with this whole, you have to move right, or you have to have a neutral spine, or you can only lift on the 17th of April. And, and you know, just arbitrary things that we throw out as being stories for people going to get hurt that are completely unsubstantiated. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely are creating additional barriers. When I say we, it's a Royal, we, I mean, we're not trying to do this barbell medicine, but certainly across healthcare fields, there's definitely additional barriers being erected in addition to the already large barriers to participation in general, just people not having time, not having access, you know, the living in an area where there's no place to be physically active, having to work too, too much to, to not, you know, uh, be active. Uh, yeah. So th- it's a complex, complex problem with many different levers we can pull, but as far as modifiable things we can do, um, uh, in the clinic, that's, that's what we're doing here. So like exercise participation rates, the rarity of exercise promotion in the clinical setting is multifaceted. Most commonly, again, physicians report lack of time, lack of reimbursement, lack of knowledge, training, and skills and exercise prescription as the main reasons why they don't prescribe exercise. And of all the factors listed, the most frequently cited barrier is the lack of education and competence in exercise prescription across the medical training career. They've actually done studies in medical students (laughs) just to like, hey, do you know the guidelines? If so, like, what are they? And like, how comfortable do you feel? And they don't feel any more comfortable than the old guard who's been, you know, been out of their medical training for years. And so it's like, at no point are we actively training people on like, here are the guidelines, here's how you should recommend them. Just as like, a, we're going to check the box. Like, hey, at some point you came across this in your training, use this frequently every time you see a patient in the primary care setting. Uh, so yeah, that that I, I've grown uh, into being like kind of confident, I say kind of confident in this thought that we're not going to change exercise participation substantially uh, from a clinical care setting if more healthcare professionals don't start exercising. Like you just like that's one way that we can move the needle. I don't know if it's going to move the needle enough for you know us to really avoid insufficient activity as being the number four <laughs> cause of you know premature mortality and, and disease. Uh, but it's going to do. It could do something. You know, and so how do we get more healthcare professionals to exercise? I was like, well, that's a whole nother question. And so maybe we'll do a part two <laughs> podcast on, uh, on that. Um, in, in relation to that, now I think like physical therapists have entered the chat, right? Because if anybody is, you know, keyed up to be an expert in exercise and likely to have more personal experience 
exercising. It's going to be PTs. I don't know about you, like when you were going through your undergrad training, uh, but it seemed like all the exercise science majors, all the health science majors who were going to go on to PT school, all of them were either athletes or exercising for the most part. It was very rare that somebody like who didn't, wasn't involved in sport or regular physical activity was like, yeah, I'm going PT. It's like, it seems like at least in, in the United States, uh, that that's pretty common. Was that, was that your experience as well? Uh, there were certainly a decent number of ex-athletes, and I would say overall my class was relatively active. But I think a lot of people go into physical therapy. It's You look at it, and on day one, what what do you want to go into? I'm sure in medicine, it's like dermatology, orthopedics. <laughs> orthopedics or yeah. Off the, yeah. And then like in physical therapy, it's I either want to do sports or peds. And the interesting part of it is if you look at it as a profession, I think it's like 5% of therapists are sports therapists and 3% are peds. So it's, it's like some of the lowest percentages you can have. And we certainly do have in-depth classes on physiology, but as far as exercise prescription, uh, I would argue it's sorely lacking as far as sets, reps, how to teach in you know, I'm going to speak to my own educational experience and I know there are outliers out here, but I'm comfortable saying this is more the rule than the exception. A lot of schools don't have classes where they get into gyms and talk about technique, dosing, you know, planning over time, which is funny because if you look at how a lot of the education is taught when we're speaking to injuries, it's everything is broken down into acute, subacute, and chronic in these fun, arbitrary things. And me being as old as I am, uh, I was in the heyday of the periodization movement where everything was a macro, meso, and micro cycle. -cycle. Yeah. 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 And and you're like, oh, well, all this is different blocks. And what do I have to account for in this block? And the analogy holds really well. And I think too often the way we are instructed is based around what can I do right now instead of what can't I do. And it ends up being so much more restrictive that way because it's like, here's your protocol with four exercises you can do that don't have sets and reps associated with it. And congratulations, the heaviest weight in your clinic is a 35. And instead of, okay, I can't land right now. I probably shouldn't bend past 90 degrees of flexion. Okay, well, that leaves me a whole different set of things that I can go do in the gym right now. Like you, you put me in a well-equipped environment, and I'll sing you a Willy Wonka song. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's just so your your take is that a lot of this is a lack of like fundamental knowledge when it comes to just exercise prescription in general. So how would you piece together a program? How if you had to like test physical therapy graduates currently, like just recent grads? Hey come up with a program. Here's the, it's a case study, you know, uh, uh, here's a person, here's a recent injury. Here's in your clinic, come up with a program for the first four weeks, come up with a program for the next four weeks. And then what you'll send them home with after they're done with their physical therapy thing. How, how much do you, how, how many folks do you think would pass that? Under 15%. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, uh, physicians are not going to do any better. They're going to do much, much worse. It's just, it's not part of the training. And, and, you know, it's, we spend so much time on diagnosis that we forget the entire conversation around prognosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, despite all of that, 
the 2019 World Confederation for Physical Therapy policy statement decreed that as experts in movement and exercise, and with a thorough knowledge of risk factors and pathology and their effects on all systems, physical therapists are the ideal professionals to promote, guide, prescribe, and manage physical activity and exercise activities and efforts. Additionally, physical therapists tend to have a lot of patient contact with the average care lasting somewhere between 6.8 to 14.9 visits over 22 to 35 days. So there's a lot of follow-up there, a lot of opportunity. Um, And as such, physical therapists seem to be primed to deliver exercise promotion to their patients. The American Physical Therapy Association agrees, stating in their 2020 position stand on health promotion, that physical therapists uh, should, and I quote, integrate scientific principles of movement, function, and exercise progression to promote physical activity and improve health outcomes for individuals individuals and populations, and incorporate concepts of prevention, wellness, fitness, and health promotion with every patient or client as appropriate. Those are, those are like very impressive statements. But then if you kind of work your way back to like, well, what is the actual fund of knowledge in most PTs that are graduating or recent grads? I don't know that I'm that confident that a physical therapist could actually do that. And that's not saying anything against physical therapists is like their person or their, you know, moral fortitude or their intelligence or anything. It's just like, if you weren't trained on how to do this, how can you do it? When you approached me about this podcast, I was like, well, awesome. I'm going to have to do everything I can not to bash my own profession here. But I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And it actually was a pretty hot button topic when this came out on whether we actually are movement experts and what that really means. Because in the grand scheme of things, if you are going to take a stance that you can't squat a certain way, you can't run a certain point, like you're not an expert at that point. You're more of a curmudgeon and you're not really facilitating people getting better. And really, I think there is a pocket of education that's missing here, but this is also the case for some of the like residency fellowship things, because during my residency, a large part of it was coming out with my exercise knowledge, but then looking around the clinic and seeing what other people were doing. And in every instance, if you don't know what's going on, you're going to slant conservative. And until you see how much you can push an athlete or, or really what a person's capable of, then odds are you're not going to be willing to go there with them. And it, there, there's been a running joke in orthopedics for longer than I've been in the profession now that if you look at most of the advancements in what we allow in our protocols, it's because the patient didn't listen. You know, somebody was like, oh, I can because in the 90s, they would cast you for six weeks after an ACL reconstruction. And now that's like the most ludicrous thing ever, but it took somebody being like, oh, I can put weight on this. They just do it. And and it's like, wow. (laughs) Well, but I think sometimes it's that phrase of like, we, we judge others by our actions and ourselves by our intentions. And the fun question to always ask therapists is if you had this injury, would you put the same limitations on yourself? Yeah. Ooh. I mean, I, I think the same thing about coaches and trainers in general, right? Because I, I see now uh, in this commercial gym setting that I'm training at most of the time, I see trainers training folks who are paying good money because it's an expensive place to, to train as far as I'm aware of. And I'm like, you, in a million years, you wouldn't do this workout. And, and it's not just related to the current fitness level, like discrepancy between you and the client. It, it's more so like ease of equipment access, like, oh, well we'll do this instead because you know this thing's taken you wouldn't do that 
you personally wouldn't do that. You would change the workout in some way that makes it still fit your needs or whatever. But these people don't even have programs that they're, you know, putting, putting folks on. They're basically every client's getting the same workout, you know, uh, based on again, equipment availability, uh, and you know, however the trainer is feeling that day. And I'm like, look, man, if you're a trainer, uh, coach, uh, and you're telling somebody to do this thing that you, if given the same goals would never do like, what do you, <laughs> you're just, you're just taking their money uh, fraudulently, I would say, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's a tough situation. I mean, when I used to have students regularly, I loved going through these situations and having them write a program because in general, how we are taught is for every deficit we perceive, there should be an exercise to match it. And when you build that out, sometimes you get a program that's 20 exercises deep. So you you go through that with the student and then you're like, okay, you've written the program for the next hour. You're going to go do the program. And you can just watch their eyes light up like, oh, that's going to be miserable. <laughs> right. And you wrote and it, dude. Like, well, you, yeah, this is, this was your plan. And, and I think it, it is, we don't step back and say like, well, how could we maybe accomplish this with less steps? Yeah. Or do we need to go through the entire alphabet of exercises? Mm. Cause yeah. you know, all we really need is SBD Jordan. Uh, well, yeah, you're preaching the choir. You get it. Um, so yeah, d- despite that aside, most national international organizations basically charge physical therapists with being movement experts, exercise experts. And this includes things like the World Health Organization, so the WHO, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, and the American Heart Association. All of these organizations have came out and said, look, we want PTs to promote exercise in their clinical practice. And so then the next question is like, well, do we have any evidence that PTs can be effective exercise promoters in the outpatient setting? So a recent systematic review and meta-analysis reviewed the efficacy of one-on-one physical therapist-led physical activity interventions at increasing exercise levels in adults in a clinic-based private practice in the primary care outpatient setting. PT-led physical activity interventions were effective at doubling the odds of adults achieving the minimum recommended physical activity levels and increasing total physical activity levels in the short to medium term up to a year after intervention uh, and ultimately increasing the amount of low, moderate, and vigorous intensity physical activity adults perform. There are multiple caveats to this particular systematic review and meta-analysis. The first one, big red flag right off the bat, it included eight studies for this meta-analysis. Only three of them actually measured strength in aerobic activity participation. Others were more general, like, do you participate in sport? How many minutes per day are you active without any sort of like uh, actual, you know, quantification or qualification of those? Um, the studies in general didn't last beyond one year. So we don't really know like, well, what happens in five years? But again, that's more of a uh, issue with the current research. Uh, and it, there's not a lot of um, granularity with respect to the fidelity of the recommendations, meaning like did certain physical therapists better explain, better demonstrate, better communicate specific recommendations to their patient population compared to others? And was there, you know, an even greater benefit? But look, all told, if you told me, look, physical therapists increase the odds of an, of an adult adhering to the current physical activity recommendations by a factor of two, well, I'm on board with that. I know that there are other barriers to people exercising, but damn it, if we can get some improvement, you know, I, I'm if it moves the needle a little bit, I'm in. So seemingly all national and international organizations are recommending that PTs get into the game. And we have evidence that physical therapist led exercise promotion can be effective. So how many PTs are actually doing this? 
Um, you know, as mentioned earlier, the most frequently cited barrier to exercise counseling by physicians is the lack of education and competence in exercise prescription. So as movement experts, do PTs feel the same sort of pressure? Uh, you would think if physical therapists exercise more than other healthcare professionals, maybe they wouldn't feel this pressure as much. So let's take a look at that. Physical therapists seem to do a lot of exercise themselves, particularly resistance training. Now, again, this is survey data and Derek's going to, he's going to, he's going to rant on this. I can feel it. But first the data in a recent survey of over 400 us based physical therapists with an average of 13 years in clinical practice, 76% of them recorded reported meeting current resistance training guidelines, so engaging in actual strength training. And 53%, so over half, met both the resistance training and conditioning components of uh, the current physical activity guidelines. Of note, this is actually a 10% decrease from a similar study that was performed 15 years earlier. So it seems like it, the trend is actually going down, but it's still much higher than physicians and much higher than non-healthcare adults. So only 30% of other healthcare professionals like physicians report that they regularly lift weights and only 20% of non-healthcare adults even lift or ever lift. Uh, with all this lifting and exercise, we'd expect quite a bit of exercise promotion because that seems to be the main consistent barrier to actually recommending exercise in clinical practice. So how do physical therapists do? 41% of them report regularly promoting physical activity, uh, but only 13% reported actually screening for physical activity in their patients. Uh, this is certainly better than physicians, even if those numbers aren't great. Because uh, again, remember that you know about 16% of Canadian uh, family doctors and less than 10% of American family physicians actually prescribe exercise to their patients. So while these numbers are better, there's probably still not meeting expectations. Um, in another uh, uh, survey, 92% of respondents uh, agreed that they were aware of the current exercise guidelines. These are physical therapists, but only 13% of them were able to correctly identify them, despite the overconfidence that they were aware. This finding is actually corroborated by another cross-sectional survey study out of Ireland comparing exercise promotion strategies and attitudes of physicians, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and nurses. About 63% of the 170 physical therapists surveyed reported that they were aware of the current guidelines, which was three times as high as physicians. Uh, but only 40% of PTs were able to correctly identify the components of the current exercise guidelines, and nearly half reported never assessing physical activity, and even less had a clear plan on how to initiate a discussion of physical activity with their patients. Uh, just as a sidebar, only 5.6% of physicians could actually identify the current guidelines. And so if it, if it sounds like I'm painting a bleak picture, it's because it is bleak. It's because it is bleak. It's like, yeah, on average, I would expect physical therapists to do more exercise than non-physical therapists, uh, healthcare professionals, but that doesn't seem to really matter that much. It, it just seems like on average, exercise promotion in clinical practice is relatively low across the board. Well, so there actually was a study from two years ago that looked at physios added the actual title of the article is physiotherapist attitudes and beliefs about low back pain influence their clinical decisions and advice um subtitle in other news water is wet and <laughs> what they found was unsurprising in that physical therapists or physios who had a more protective view tended to be much more conservative in what they were willing to promote so if you say you're doing resistance training, but it's all 
body weight exercises where you're talking about activating the transverse abdominis and multifidi, like one, you're not resistance training. Two, you're likely being overly restrictive in what's going on. And I think, well, I don't think I'm comfortable backing this up with plenty of evidence. The way low back pain or, or pick an injury, like just we can pull one out of a hat and it's almost always spent talking about, well, you don't want to damage or the, this pathology or pathologizing, pathologizing. Wow. Struggling with that one. Uh, pathologizing uh, normal variations and it's ended up manifesting in these narratives coming out that yes, we want you to be active, but you can't do it that way. You can't do it that way. You can't do it that way. And you're like, well, which way am I supposed to do it? Well, you need a red TheraBand and a blood pressure cuff. It's just, yeah, when you create all these barriers to actually meeting the guidelines, it the the percentage of folks who you're trying to get active, it's just going to keep dropping. And, and you know, it, some of this is like a helpless sort of feeling. You're like, well, I'm seeing my physical therapist because I got this knee injury or low back pain or whatever. Uh, but the PT is telling me I can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, can't do this. And I don't have a list of exercises that I can do. And I was never counseled to start doing these other things that don't even involve the affected structure, quote unquote, right? So if you have knee pain, it's like, well, you still got an upper body. Like how, sh- how should you be exercising that in the interim? And like, that's just not being done by and large. And, and a lot of this seems to be due to, again, personal exercise practices by the PT, knowledge and exercise prescription, time, of course, uh, and also just I guess, education uh, with respect to behavior change counseling. It's like, how do you even bring this up? Um, it does seem like physical therapists overall recognize the importance of exercise and are in a prime position to help people start exercising. But this doesn't seem to be routine practice for more than half of PTs, despite patients uh, expecting not only counseling on how to exercise, but also coaching. Uh, based on existing survey data, I think that most PTs and other healthcare professionals would like to be involved in exercise promotion. You know, they feel it. They're like, this is, this is my duty, but the barriers of not having much personal exercise experience, particularly with maybe the injury uh, or, 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 or issue that their patient is actually facing, uh, a lack of additional training in behavior change techniques and not being confident in evidence-based exercise prescription are likely the major modifiable factors here. As far as how to fix that, well, we're only going to cover a little bit of it. We're going to address those, th- those three things in, in some detail, but Man, this would require an overhaul, I think, of the physical therapy education, uh, particularly in our country, but likely worldwide. Yeah, I would agree with that. Derek agrees. All right. So how should physical therapists and other healthcare professionals be recommending exercise? We're going to start with this behavior change thing because I think, and I've I've said this before on a a number of other podcasts, a number of seminars, a number of Ask Me Anythings or whatever, people are like, what's the number one skill that I should attain in order to be a better coach, a better doctor, better physical therapist? And it's like, you need to become an expert in behavior change counseling techniques. If you don't know how to do this, if you don't know how to do motivational interviewing and, and ultimately get people to change their behavior, it doesn't, your fund of knowledge otherwise, it tends to be less uh, relevant and less useful outside of the inpatient setting where you're basically putting in orders as a physician and they're being executed and like you're treating whatever communicable disease or issue or, you know, acute trauma or whatever that the person rolls through the door with. But outside of that, any sort of like lifestyle sort of based uh, behavior uh, issue that you run into, if you don't know how to do behavior change counseling, like you're up a creek. 
And so I don't care if you know the Krebs cycle. I don't care if you know, you know, all of the periodization uh, stuff from the, from the Eastern Bloc, or if you ever read Super Training, or if you ever uh, went through Tudor Bampa's, you know, <laughs> transfer of exercise to sport. All of those, it's fine to have that fund of knowledge, but if you don't know how to communicate and how to get people to actually change the behavior, you're, you, you know, you have all these tools, but you don't know how to use them. And so let's start with this behavior change thing. The easiest way, I think, to start behavior change counseling in a, a simple way, it's not that complex, is using the five A's, right? So the five A's are assess, advise, assess again, assist, and arrange. So the first A is assess. And this should be just assessing people's uh, physical activity level. Um, this is the uh, physical activity as a vital sign. That's the free questionnaire. It's available on the Exercises Medicine website. Uh, link that in the description below. And it's three questions. Question number one, number one, on average, how many days per week do you engage in moderate or greater intensity physical activity, like going for a brisk walk or faster? On average, how many minutes do you engage in that physical activity on those days? And so at that point, you're able to determine, are they meeting the conditioning uh, uh, guidelines uh, of the current physical activity recommendations? And then the third question is, how many days per week do you lift weights or do calisthenics? And that's just like, is this person active at all? That, that's You're just trying to get a sense of what they're doing. Well, but I still feel like sometimes the, these type questions, and I think they're great, uh, come off a little too robotic. What have you currently been doing for fun? What would you like to do for fun that you currently cannot do? Sure. Yeah. You, and, can, you know, can definitely start with open-ended yeah. questions like, what do you do, do, do activity-wise? What do you like to do? Yeah. Easy way to start it. But you got to get down to brass tacks at some point where it's like, yeah. <laughs> how often do you do them for how long? But I mean, if I asked you on average, how many days or how many minutes do you engage in physical activity on an average day? And you, who I know has a very regimented training program, like, what do you think your margin of error if we put an accelerometer on you would be? Yeah, it's not, I mean, you know, probably 10, 20%, but that's even me knowing all the stuff, whereas somebody else, it's got to be bigger. Um, Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, you can start with open-ended questions just to try to get into this. But at the end of the day, if you're not doing some sort of assessment to figure Mm -hmm. out, like, is this person active or not, it's really hard for you to, to figure out where to go next. I think. Well, but I, I think to that, what would you like to do that you can't currently do? Or, or, and then the next question is like, well, how long can you do it before you start having problems? And there you anchor to something that's quantifiable because especially on the advice for targeting exercise, the, the conversations I have all the time is, well, you know, if walking 10 minutes and we get you to 20 minutes, we're still not grocery shopping pain-free, but we've doubled the amount of time that you can tolerate it. And being able to anchor that to where the individual can see progress, especially in those instances where there might be a very large gap between where where they are and where they want to go. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's super useful. I like the idea of standardizing it so people, you know, it's almost like an algorithm at some point, so people do it. But I also I also see the benefit of you know individualizing it to the person, uh, not only their current understanding level, but also something that's typical of their life so that they can, you know, answer in a way that doesn't have much error, but it also, you can use that later as like leverage to get them to change the behavior. I see, I see both sides of it. And I think if you're well-skilled at this, at these behaviors, you'll, you'll do it naturally in a way. So you may start with an open-ended question like, Hey, tell me, uh, in a given week, what do you, what do you do for, you know, physical activity? Oh, and, and then you, or you could even say, what do you like to do for activity? And you just, you're getting a sense because then you're like, and how often do you do that? And then you could even drill down more and more specific 
how long do you end up doing this on average on stuff like that? Uh, all of that works, but the point is you got to start with the assessment. If you don't assess, you don't really know where you're com- where you're starting at and where you're going to go. Um, so that's the assessment. That's that's the first A. The second A is going to be advise on a target for exercise. And by and large, if we could get people, if we can get people just to meet the current physical activity guidelines, we would be in a much much better place. And a little can go a long way. So for example, increasing the number of steps taken per day by an additional 2000 steps, which is about 20 minutes of brisk walking, reduces the risk of having a cardiovascular event and elevated blood sugar by about 10% and 25% respectively. With respect to resistance training in particular, there appears to be a 23% reduction in all-cause mortality in individuals who resistance train two to three times per week with a linear relationship between training volume and improvements in health outcomes. Meaning that uh, and when I say linear, I don't mean directly like one-to-one, sorry, I mean more of a dose dependent relationship. The more training people do, the more improvements they have on health outcomes. And so this dose the dependent effect where larger doses of training volume in this case produce larger effects, uh, are seen with respect to not only resistance training volume, but also cardiorespiratory, uh, training volume and basically reduces the risk and or impact of a number of diseases, uh, including all cause mortality. So that's the second A is advise. So you're basically telling somebody like, here's where we're going. Here's where I'd like you to go. Here's the roadmap. We're going to, you know, we're here right now based on the assessment. And here's where we want to go is to at least meet these physical activity guidelines. And so that's more of a communicating just direct knowledge. Like they probably aren't aware of the current physical activity guidelines and by showing them where they want to go, you're you're not only setting the stage for the next few steps, but also giving them sort of a goal uh, for physical activity. So the third A here is going to be assess again. And here you're assessing things like physical abilities, readiness to change, their current beliefs, and it might in, uh, indicate some barriers to initiating exercise, and also their preferences. So what kind of exercise would you be willing to do? What kind of physical activities do you like? For activities you don't like, why don't you like them? You may elicit some narratives about, I don't like lifting free weights because I'm afraid uh, that this may happen because my cousin was doing this and this bad thing happened, or I heard that this is bad for for your back, or my doctor told me I have bone on bone arthritis. Like I don't think I can lift weights, and all of these things are just barriers that have been created or erected uh, to getting people to exercise. And so this part is probably the most time consuming, where you're kind of eliciting all of these narratives that people have that have prevented them, despite likely knowing that exercise is beneficial for them, <laughs> from not doing it. And so this is where you earn your this is where you earn your keep uh, as a expert. In the field. So that's the third A is assess again. The fourth A is assist on developing a plan. And the keyword here is assist. The idea isn't that you say, okay, well, let me uh, type something up real quick and uh, we'll deliver it to you, or I'll send you an email, or I'll hand you this handout. Well, now I think a handout is better than nothing. Ideally, the training plan is individualized to their person, to the person. So not only are we trying to meet the physical activity guidelines, but we're also trying to use their preferred exercises and exercise modes. We're also taking into consideration what can they do right now? What would you feel comfortable or what would they feel comfortable uh, doing right now? Their resources, so how much time do they have? Do they have access to a gym in that gym? What's there? Uh, and you're letting this person kind of be a manager uh, and an active participant in their own health outcomes by asking for their input, asking for their feedback, asking for their preferences. And, and again, you, you get to kind of revisit that, assess their current belief systems when you go through this. But the idea isn't just, oh, you will, in like a patriarchal kind of way, a paternal sort of way, where you're like, I'll just decide. 
that's not the idea. We, we want people to do exercise that they enjoy. And if they play an active role in managing and deciding uh, what they're going to do, uh, likely improves adherence. Um, and ultimately, you just get to meet the person where they're at based on their current physical uh, fitness levels, the resources, um, and, and things of that nature. Finally, the last A is arrange follow-up. And this is likely within the normal uh, PT-patient relationship. It's probably going to be in a couple of days. So you could realistically just come up with one workout based on their preferences, based on their current fitness levels, their current uh, uh, capabilities, and say, hey, between now and the next time I see you, let's, let's try this based on what you've, you've said to me. And then just come back and, and let me know how it went. You're doing that anyway as a PT with like, hey, I've got the shoulder pain. I'm here for the shoulder pain. I'm here for this low back pain. I'm here for this. I just had surgery on my knee, ACL repair or whatever. And so you're teaching them how to do exercises at some point and you're giving them a prescription on what to do. They got a whole rest of their body though, too. And so you should be doing that as well. And I think uh, incorporating that is probably the biggest thing that's missing right now. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, yes. Uh, and a lot of this is based in how we are educated in that due to the constraints of direct access and having a script, you'll hear a lot of PTs say, well, our script is to just treat the knee. So that's the only thing that we have in our scope. Luckily, there's been a big movement in what we're allowed to do um, now, especially with direct access to where, you know, if we are going to take the charge of being the bastions of movement and health, and then we need to be looking at the entire individual in front of us. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think it should just be part of your normal practice that not only are you addressing the thing on the prescription pad, Hey, they came, they came here post-op knee, uh, uh, or with acute shoulder pain or, or, or low back pain. And so you're working with that, but the rest of the body too. And again, the goal is to move this person closer and closer and closer to meeting or exceeding the current physical activity guidelines. So there's just more to the story than just the one joint, one area of the body, one set of exercises, uh, to deal with that. Um, okay. So those are the five A's you can, you can literally Google that and you'll find a list of that, but that's how I would do it in this particular setting. And now as far as the evidence-based exercise prescription, this is like the programming how-to. And so we'll try to, I mean, we could do, oh, man, how, how long do you think it would, it would take to get all of the knowledge and experience contained within both of our brains with respect to programming out into the wild in a podcast form? Like how many hours <laughs> do you think that would Frodo take? Frodo could get the ring to Mordor before we would be done. <laughs> yeah, but we're going to try to do it in 20 minutes in a, in a way <laughs> where people can uh, take that in, chew on it, and and give them some, uh, uh, some things to think about. So uh, the goal here, again, is to meet the physical activity guidelines in an effort to increase strength lean mass and cardiorespiratory endurance. Why those things? Because those three things are specifically correlated with improved health outcomes and health trajectories. I could, you know, opine eloquently on the benefits of improving balance and stamina and, you know, whatever other physical qualities that you, you want to list. But as far as the available evidence goes, increasing strength, power as well, but that's kind of more of a function of strength, lean mass and cardiovascular endurance. Those are the things we have the most evidence on. And so I feel uh, most confident about recommending training to improve those things rather than like, you know, again, stamina, balance, whatever the other 10 general physical skills that the creator of the Dynamax balls came up with and that CrossFit later adopted. Then PTs even go up to that by calling it neuromuscular training. And it's like, well, it 
dude, it's just skills training. It doesn't need to be all parsed out into the minutia of every component. And I think, well, too often what gets conflated is it's a lot more fun to talk about the super high level athletes where you need to be discerning out 1%. Whereas your margins of error for people just getting started are like, if it works, it works. And too often we apply those same restrictions that we would to pick whatever elite canoeist and make it uh, the same level of restrictive to the person who's just trying to keep their head above water. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. So with respect to strength, what is strength? Strength is the force produced by the muscles measured in a specific context. There's all sorts of different strength. There's low velocity, maximal strength. That's what most people probably think about when they say, oh, that person's strong, meaning they could do like a 1RM squat, bench press, press, deadlift, chin up. It moves at relatively low velocity, a lot of weight. There's also high velocity strength. That's power right? So there's a time component there. There's strength endurance, strength stamina. So the ability to produce force repeatedly, submaximally for a long period of time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in any create, in any case, we'd like to increase the strength of an individual in a variety of movements, rep ranges, and physical tasks, rather than specialize in a small number of exercises or a particular rep range based on their preferences, resources, and physical ability. And this becomes, uh, very important when considering the needs of somebody who's relatively untrained, compared to an elite athlete who's otherwise unrestricted. And so a person who is relatively untrained, regardless of if they identify as a golfer or a canoeist or a rower or a whatever, if they're relatively untrained, meaning that they haven't been regularly formally exercising for years and years and years, they don't need a specific program for a golfer, a rower or track athlete, whatever it is. They need to first become trained with a, and develop a broad base of physical attributes. And then later they can specify. So I see all this stuff. It's like, oh, uh, golfers need this particular type of training. And it's invariably something with a medicine ball or a cable where they're doing rotational stuff. And I don't think any of that is bad per se, but it's like, this person's not even strong yet. What are we doing? And so, and again, when I say strong, it doesn't only mean strong in the squat bench deadlift. It's strong in a lunge, strong in a step up, strong in a, you know, landmine press, strong in a horizontal rowing pattern. There's like strength is specific to the context in which it's not only trained, but also measured, but you can be strong in a bunch of different ways. And I want you strong in pretty much everything by the time we go to specialize. doesn't mean you have to be an elite performer in everything, but it's like you got to have some exposure and become trained before we can further narrow the scope and specialize. And again, since most people are not actually lifting and meeting the current physical activity guidelines, the majority of people that you're ever going to coach or train are untrained. So I get this question all the time. How would you train for golfing? For golf? How do you train a golfer? And it's like, well, first I'm going to do the same thing that I would do with somebody who identifies as another type of recreational athlete or not even an athlete at all. I'm going to get them some semblance of being well-trained and then later specify. So from a strength perspective, I want people to get stronger in a variety of movements, rep ranges and physical tasks and not specialize. That means not, I'm only, not only going to prescribe fives. I'm not only going to prescribe tens. I'm not only going to prescribe 15s. I'm going to do all of them. Uh, in some semblance to, again, develop this broad base of physical development. From a lean body mass perspective, we said this was another goal that we had. This is defined as all fat-free mass. Said differently, lean body mass includes muscle tissue, bone, organ tissue, water, anything that's not fat. Our last podcast, we talked about this in more detail, but we want people to grow bigger muscles, have more muscle mass, or 
at least just pr- preserve the existing muscle mass they have. And this is a big issue uh, with detraining for people who are in acute injury setting. Um, you know, somebody's post-op ACL and they're like, they see their leg atrophy. And it's like, on to some level, we can avoid some of that, not only by training the rest of the leg in a way that does not, you know, cause them a bunch of discomfort or, you know, lead to uh, post-op complications, but also by training the other healthy leg there's this crossover effect and also training the rest of the body. You get this systemic effect and you can prevent muscle atrophy, strength loss and things of that nature. And it's like, why are we not taking advantage of this regularly? You know, somebody playing rec league soccer, for example, tears their ACL, needs an ACL repair. It's like, well, they came into the sport not being trained and not. And now in this post-op injury setting, they're going to lose even more muscle mass and strength and detrain further. It's like, boy, we have a huge opportunity that we could help people. Well, it's, it's the question of how many athletes when they return to sport are in better shape than when they got injured. And if you're going to call yourself a movement systems expert, I, I would say that should be a minimal bar mm-hmm. that we're yep. aiming for. Yep. You're trying to, you're trying to reduce as much muscle loss as possible, reduce strength loss as much as possible. Uh, and then ideally before they re-enter practice and or competitive sport, they're at least back to where they were before, ideally on a trajectory where they're going to be better than they were before, more prepared less, you know, injury risk to the extent that these are controllable factors, uh, and prepared yeah, for the demands of their sport. But again, for folks who kind of came into their sport relatively untrained, I think you got to develop that, that base of sort of physical development first. And if that wasn't done already, well, this may take a longer period of time than, than some folks, uh, would, would really want. So, yep, we definitely want to make sure that we're preserving and or increasing lean body mass. And, you know, to the extent you can train the rest of the body outside of the, uh, unaffected part in a physical therapy setting, I would recommend that. Um, and even if you can train the area around the injured, uh, area, I would also recommend that. Lastly, cardiorespiratory fitness or cardio is defined as the ability to sustain an activity at a particular pace. Increased levels of cardiorespiratory fitness are associated with improvements in health, such as reducing the risk of obesity and obesity-related diseases, cardiovascular disease, including heart attack and stroke, cognitive decline, and all-cause mortality. Again, in a dose-dependent manner, the higher your cardiorespiratory fitness, the lower your risk of developing these things are. So when people go, how much, how much cardio is enough? And it's like the upper limit does not exist. If you are a particular, if you are a specific athlete, uh, particularly like a strength and power athlete, there may be some inflection point where the amount of training that you have to do to further improve your cardiorespiratory fitness may represent too much of a training load for you to actually handle in order to become the strongest, most powerful version of yourself. But if you were looking at this just from a health perspective, the upper limit of cardiorespiratory fitness does not exist. And so for a person who is not a highly uh, competitive athlete, again, who has not developed a ton of fitness prior to seeing the physical therapist, it's like you are not going to outkick your coverage with respect to cardiorespiratory fitness. The initial dose of conditioning that you prescribe uh, should be tailored to their current fitness levels, of course. But I would not worry about like interfering with strength gains or lean body mass gains. It, it's like you're not you're not going to do that unless the programming is very very dumb. And it's not the interference effect of like oh cardio negatively influences strength or hypertrophy gains. It's just that the total training load is too much. And we talked about this in a number of podcasts uh, with respect to the interference effect. Well, but I think here it's worth mentioning there aren't really bad ideas. They're just bad plans. To the 5K runner, a marathon looks like a bad idea. To the ultra marathoner, a marathon looks like a Tuesday. And it really is where on the spectrum 
are you trying to obtain or trying to fall? And the crazier your goal is, it tends to just be the more the other variables need to be dialed in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like an equalizer, right? So you got like put up the base a little bit, but as the base goes up, you're going to have to adjust the treble a little bit. And then once those are kind of adjusted, well, you got now you got to address the mids. And the whole point is meeting people where they're at with respect to total training dose. And then tailoring the type of training, the particulars of the training, that's the exercise selection, the rep scheme, the proximity to failure, all these things we're about to discuss in some detail uh, to their preferences, their resources, their current fitness levels, and then also to select for improvements in strength, of which there are multiple types, lean body mass, and cardiorespiratory fitness. So those are the three main goals that we're programming for. So how do we do this? This is the how to program section. Uh, so re- let's recall the components of the physical activity guidelines. This twice weekly resistance training to train all of the major muscle groups of the body and then 500 to 1,000 met minutes per week of conditioning, which is another way of saying the 150 to 300 minutes of moderate uh, aerobic activity or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity aerobic activity or some combination thereof. The way you get you figure out how many met minutes of conditioning that you're doing, you take the metabolic cost of the activity. So like walking at a brisk pace is approximately four mets per minute and you multiply it by the duration. So if you walk briskly for 30 minutes and it's a four met activity, that's 120 met minutes. So per week, you'd want to do that at least, you know, three to four times to meet the sort of minimum aerobic activity guidelines. And as the activity becomes more and more intense, the met cost goes up. So I think the highest one I saw on there was like, uh, it was uh, like dragging a carcass through the woods or something like that. Like there's a whole metabolic compendium of like activities that people may do. And it's like dragging a heavy, large game through. <laughs> and I was like, what? that's like 15 mets. I mean, how long would I have to do that? You know, I was gonna say, we actually moved gyms on Friday from the old facility to the new, much larger one. And it was really hilarious to see individuals who you know pick up barbells for fun, having to move said barbells, a hundred yards and pick up power racks and, and move a knee extension machine. You're like, well, the transferability here, this, this is a different kind of work today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're doing something different. Yep. Um, all right. So let's say, let's talk about how to program resistance training in this setting. So the way that I do it is I think about movements in four types of movement categories. So I think about a squat type movement. I think about a hinge type movement, like a deadlift, for example. Um, I think about a push type movement, and those could be horizontal or vertical. And I think about a pull type movement that could be vertical or horizontal as well. And so within each of these categories, we should be identifying movements that the person can do based on whatever their current restrictions are in the PT setting. You know, uh, they may have one limb that's kind of out of commission, but you can figure out ways, for example, for a person with a shoulder injury to squat, uh, or do a lunge or do a step up or do a leg press or do, you know, you can just go on down the line. I further refine this list as into primary, secondary, and tertiary movements within each one of these divisions. Now, this is just the way I do it. This is not an evidence-based sort of thing. I have not seen this reported in the literature, but this is just the way that I do it. So I think again, about four major types of movement, squat, hinge, push, pull. Uh, and then within each movement, 
category, I think about a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary type of movement. The primary movement movement tends to be compound, can be done uh, with relatively heavy absolute loads. There's a large range of motion, uses lots of muscle mass, and this is like keyed up to be used in a low rep range. So for a squat, the primary movement might be a back squat or a front squat or a safety squat bar squat, or it could be a belt squat, or it could be a leg press. Invariably, you're moving a relatively large amount of weight over a relatively large range of motion using a lot of muscle mass. You're using more than one joint and it kind of sets you up to use a relatively low rep range, which I'm considering somewhere in that sort of three to eight rep range is my sort of barometer for a quote unquote low rep range. So that's primary. The secondary would be similar to the primary, but less load and or less muscle mass and uh, can be used for a moderate rep range somewhere in that eight to 12, six to 12, six to 10, somewhere in there, that sort of rep range. And so if I picked a back squat, for example, for the primary squat pattern, the secondary movement might, this case might be a leg press or a belt squat, uh, or it could be, uh, any other, you know, hack squat or uh, goblet squat, you know, whatever, any sort of thing. And then tertiary uh, this tends to be more like isolation, although it also could be compound, could also be a good opportunity for unilateral exercise. We're using even lighter absolute weights and even less muscle mass. And again, uh, you can use a higher rep range in general, somewhere in that 10 to 15 rep range or similar. So if I picked a back squat for the primary movement, a leg press for the secondary movement, I might pick split squat or lunge or leg extensions, single leg, leg extension, whatever in the example of a squat pattern movement. Um, and you could do this for the squat, the hinge, the push, the pull. You can further refine push and pulls into vertical and horizontal, whatever you want to do. The idea is that you're creating this program based on what the person can do, based on the current injury in a physical therapy setting, based on the resources they have access to, including time, gym equipment, et cetera, and their preferences. You're doing all of these things, and that's the way I like to think about it. Um, again, I want people to do the squat, the hinge pattern, the push pattern, the pull pattern multiple times per week with different exercises, different rep schemes, uh, and ultimately develop this broad base of physical development. Uh, so as far as how to actually do this um, in like a, a practical sense, there is no right exercise to pick that is, you know, universally better than the other one. I cannot tell you that back squatting is better than the leg press for health promotion. I cannot tell you that the bench press with the barbell is better than a dumbbell bench press or a hammer strength chest press or a, you know whatever else type of horizontal press for health. When it, with respect to performance, it really depends on how you're testing performance as far as which one would likely attain or achieve a better outcome. But as far as health, it's honestly, we're just trying to get people to do these things. And so having the person communicate with you what they prefer to do, what they can do, what they're willing to do is going to kind of clue you in on what you can pick. And so I like to pick a, a primary and secondary and tertiary exercise for each one of the movement patterns and try to include them in a two to three day per week resistance training program if somebody's willing to train that much. If they're not willing to train that much, I'll pick a primary and a, and a tertiary for each one of the movements and they'll train twice per week. If they're only willing to train once per week, well, I'm probably picking a primary uh, squat, a uh, primary push, uh, and in some sort of hinge, probably going to be secondary or tertiary, tertiary. And then the next week, I'm going to flip it. The next week, they'll do a primary hinge, a uh, primary push or pull, and then a tertiary squat. 
And we're just trying to, again, hit all the major muscle groups at least once a week, ideally twice per week. Uh, and you can kind of suss that out based on the person's preferences, resources, et cetera. Uh, Derek, what do you think of my non-evidence-based way of categorization uh, to sort of think about programming? It's not too far off of how I do it, which is likely unsurprising. I typically start mine by asking what equipment they have access to. Because it's one thing to be like, yeah, let's do leg press. And like, I don't have a leg press, but I have a hack squat or I have a pendulum squat. So I, I try and figure out uh, what they have access to and then build off of that. But I think the squat hinge push pull is about as good as it goes. Um, I think my current slant for tertiary is a little bit more towards trying to have something that's a little bit velocity based, like moving, moving quick versus just having something in there. Yeah. Like a bodybuilder. Yeah. I trend more towards bodybuilding. You tend more towards power because you work with actual athletes and I work with washed up power lift. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Most of my clientele are just general fitness enthusiasts and they're like, I, I, they, they tend to want to just get bigger uh, and relatively and stronger. And so I'm like, well, I don't know that we need to train power year round, but certainly for an athlete who's involved in like a sport where power production is, is either germane to the sport or improves sports performance. I would definitely do that, especially in the rehab setting. We had a whole podcast about it because you got to get people prepared to move fast. Um, yeah. So I would do all, I would do all of that. That's the way I think about it. Again, squat, hinge, push, pull. You can, you can separate the push and pull further to horizontal and vertical. Uh, I would pick a primary, secondary, and tertiary exercise for each uh, and then try to do all of that within a training week if you could. That's if a person's like, I'm ready to exercise. Like, what? <laughs> tell me what to do, exercise daddy. But <laughs> if they're, if they're uh, a little bit more limited, then you got to kind of pick uh, some things. And I don't think that just focusing all on primary exercises in a low rep scheme. I don't think that's the way to go for general health promotion. That's more of a specialization, for example, for power lifters. And it's like, well, you can get to that point when somebody is well-trained to start, but starting there leaves holes in your game, your strength, stamina, strength, endurance. Some of the muscular hypertrophy stuff has not been well-developed. Your power production has not been well-developed. You have not become proficient across a wide variety of movements because you've only selected ones you can load real, real heavy. And it's like, man, I don't know that to be a great power lifter, you need to focus a lot on your split squat strength, but you should do some of it. You should do some of it again to particularly in, in the off season. And if you're in a rehab setting, what better, cho- what better time than to focus on things that you've never trained before. Um, so yeah, I would do, I would do all of that. Uh, pick the rep ranges you'd like to use based on again, uh, whether you're classifying the exercise as primary, secondary, and tertiary. And you can think about like, is this well suited for a low, heavy, uh, type of movement, uh, low rep, heavy type of movement, or is it better suited for a high rep range, uh, type of movement maybe it's isolation, or is it better saluted, uh, uh, situated as a high velocity type movement? Like Derek was saying, uh, there are a wide variety of viable rep ranges for health with respect to promoting strength and hypertrophy improvements. Um, as far as the next step, now you got to pick a proximity to failure because effectively what you've done now is you've picked the exercises based on the person's feedback based on their needs, based on their resources. You've picked rep ranges, okay? Based, again, there's this wide range of different rep schemes that could potentially work, each selecting for slightly different adaptations. And now you got to pick a proximity to failure and communicate that effectively. We like to use auto-regulation. We like to use RPE, which stands for rate of perceived exertion, as a proxy for repetitions in reserve. So for example, RPE6, 
would mean that you have four reps left in reserve, RP7, three reps left in reserve, RP8, two reps left in reserve, and so on and so on. You could also use other scales, other proxies, like the feeling scale. This has actually been used in the literature where they tell people, hey, I want you to go do this particular exercise at a weight where somewhere in the 10 to 15 rep range, it feels pretty hard. And people in ver- uh, tend to select weights that are around 70%-ish, 65% of their 1RM. And you can use a scale as granular uh, uh, or as broad as that. Hey, it could feel pretty hard. It could feel easy. It could feel very hard. And people will do, will, will do that. It just really depends on the education level of the individual. What you can't do is just program percentages because <laughs> how are people going to pick a weight based on percentages they don't know, particularly in a rehab setting? And then second thing you can't do, you can't just tell them do this many reps by this many sets and then have them select their own weight without any sort of discussion of here's how hard it should be. Because at that point, you run the risk of two things happening. Thing one, it's way too easy. It's not heavy enough to actually generate any adaptations. Or it's far too heavy and they're going to failure or past failure. You know, they're failing a lot, which again is another problem. Uh, and so as far as making sure that the training, total training load, the dose of training is appropriate, you have to control for this proximity to failure. And we like using RPE or RIR, uh, something like that. But yeah, just saying, yeah, do three sets of 10. It's like, but, but how, how hard should it be? And and that might not get you into trouble the first workout, the second workout, third workout. But when it comes to progression, now you're really up a creek because then how do they know when to add weight, when to subtract weight, when to add reps? You you don't know. This was a conversation I had with an athlete just yesterday because I feel a lot of patients will tell a therapist if the workout is too hard, but they rarely tell them it's too easy. And I I had a long discussion was like, if what they are prescribing you in this clinic is not sufficiently hard to where you feel like you are challenged, you need to tell them that because there needs to be an adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. So ideally you'd be getting feedback with the, uh, again, that fifth step of the five A's, the arranged follow-up. Hey, how, you know, how hard was the session that we sent you home with that you agreed to do or how, you know, and getting some feedback there, but you need to pick some sort of proximity to failure based on the, again, exercise that you selected, I'm more okay with uh, isolation exercises going near closer to failure than I am compound exercises. Uh, and you just need to be consistent about that. The next thing you got to pick is the volume. So you've got a rep scheme, you've got an exercise, you've got a proximity to failure, but how many sets should they do? And if I'm being 100% honest, this is a guessing game based on experience and sort of, uh, and when I say experience, I don't just mean coaching others, but also personal experience. Like, do you know if somebody is relatively untrained do you send them out there do five sets of this on week one or do you send them out there and you say do one set of this on week one well i can't tell you based on evidence that one is better than the better than five or five is better than one in all situations but i do know that out kicking someone's coverage with respect to total training load does predispose them to a few things one increased risk of injury two increased risk of burnout Three, increased risk of being frustrated and and ultimately not adhering to the program. And so I would tend to start lower, more conservatively and add over time. Um, So I typically start people off with one working set of each exercise. 
And then I add a working set on weeks two and week three just to get to three sets. Why three sets? I don't know. I don't know. I just like it. That's just what I like. But it gives me a sense of like, okay, they're training with a significant training load at this point based on three sets of all these different exercises at these prescribed rep ranges, at these prescribed proximities to failure. I can now better ascertain like, is this enough training dose? Or is it not enough based on how they're responding? Are they able to add weight regularly? Are they able to add reps regularly for using a rep range? Are they able to move the weight faster? Things of that nature. And if I'm seeing incremental improvements in a somewhat regular basis, every other week, every third week, something like that, great. I've found the appropriate training dose and formulation for them at this point. Is it optimal? I don't know. But you couldn't know either <laughs> unless you were running this blinded study where you had, you know, they had multiple identical twins with the same sort of history and you were running different iter iterations of each program. So I just tend to titrate up to three sets and go from there. That's just my, my, what I do off the cuff. And again, that's not strictly evidence-based, but uh, that's what I tend to gravitate towards initially. And then the next iterative changes I make to the program are likely related to the training dose unless the person reports, I hate this exercise, this exercise I can't do very repeat, you know, in a, with a repeatable technique, or I just don't do it because I hate it so much. In that case, I start changing the uh, uh, formulation of the training with respect to the exercise selection, uh, for example. So that's how I select the volume. And then the last thing you have to communicate is how to progress. And so we wrote this whole article called progressive loading. Uh, and I really think this comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of what progressive overload actually is. When you look at the original literature discussing the progressive overload principle, which is way older than most people give credit to, it's not about just increasing the weight to then increase strength. It's rather the development of fitness adaptations that require an increase in either load on the bar repetitions completed, velocity of movement increasing, or reduction in rest periods, or some combination of those things, basically to match the new fitness level that a person has. You're effectively making sure that the training uh, is meeting the person where they're at on a given day. And so if a person is stronger, they have to add weight to maintain the same proximity to failure. If a person is under-recovered, the performance is down otherwise due to some psychosocial stressors or environmental stress, et cetera, the weight on the bar has to go down in order to meet them where they're at. If they get if they are stronger and can complete more reps, great, they have to do that in order to keep the training uh, stress, the dose of training, the same. It's like the Greg LeMond quote, right? It, it never gets easier, you just go faster. So my hot take, I don't know if I've ever said this out loud before, but training shouldn't get harder as you get stronger. It should just remain the same level of hardness while you're doing more. Over a career, your first training session and your last training session <laughs> should be about the same level of hardness. It's just you're going to be doing a lot more towards the end of it because you are uh, far fitter than you were when you started. But really, even talking about selecting intensity, whether it be RPE, RIR, like you could be distilled down to was that hard enough or if it was too hard. And, and I agree fundamentally, it, it never gets easier. There's just a lot more weight on the bar. And it, <clears throat> I think it is that like we need to try and squeeze out every drop we can of gains. And at some point you start out kicking physiological adaptation when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the adaptation rate is going to vary by the individual, 
by the adaptation and by the training that they're they're able to do currently, but it's it's not going to be linear and it's not going to be predictable either. We expect it the adaptations whether it's increased strength, increased power, increased muscle mass, increased cardiorespiratory fitness, we think those things should trend up over time. The program should demonstrably increase all of those things over time. But as far as the time course or the clock that they're on, boy, good luck. Good luck. Week to week, no way. <laughs> training session to training session within a week, good luck. Not, not going to happen. Um, and so when we did this, uh, we Austin and I previously did a podcast on this, when I actually studied like the first like sign of strength improvement in studies that measure strength at multiple times. They actually have people do no shit, one RMs. The average time it takes for the first demonstrable strength increase is like three and a half or four weeks. But you have people are like, no, I add weight to the bar every time I squat. I squat three times a week. And it's like, well, yeah, if you start artificially light and you have uh, and the the degree of hardness doesn't factor at all into your weight uh, selection, then yeah, you can add weight every, you know, every 48 hours. But that's not you getting stronger. That's you just changing the goalposts. If you squat 135 for three sets of five at RP6 on day one, and then you do 155 pounds for three sets of five at RP7.5 or eight on day two, you didn't get stronger. You just added weight to the bar and you changed the goalposts. And then on day three, you did 175 for three sets of five and it's RP 10. And you're like, look, I put 40 pounds on my squat in one week. It's like, no, you didn't. You, you mean you lifted, you lifted more weight and it was far harder. You could have done that on day one. You just didn't. It's like, that's, you're not stronger. All you did was do a different workout. And, and, you know, to the extent people want to do that, great. Live your life. You're an adult, but it's not the best way to get strong. What's funny is this is the one difference between how you program working up to one set and how I tend to approach it because I almost always will have two sets out of the gate, at least one at six and one at seven or one at seven and one at eight, just because the point I'm trying to convey is different weights should feel different ways. And we're trying to find out what is sufficiently hard for you right now. Yeah. I found if I just like two sets of five at seven, Odds are, in most instances, it was way below really what seven should be because initially, especially for a novice, they have no idea what they're capable of. Yeah. Yeah. So like for the beginner prescription, for example, I have people do like a set of four at RP6, a set of four at RP7, and a set of four at RP8. The idea is like feel the different levels of hardness, right? And then on week two, I'm like, all right, let's work up to a set of four at eight. And we're going to do that for a couple of sets, two sets. And week three, we're going to do it for three sets. But week one is more of this introduction, like here are the differences between how this feels approximately. You don't have to be super, super accurate. That's not the thing. You just need to be precise, meaning that you're using the same scale each time and you got the same brain each time. So that's fine. Uh, so yeah, that's how I think about prescribing resistance training. We pick the exercises, we pick the rep schemes, we pick the proximity to failure, we determine the volume. And then we describe the progression. So people are like well attuned to like what's going to happen and how to do it. And then the last part of this is how to program aerobic training. Similarly to resistance training, identify the modes that they can do. If somebody's post-op ACL, guess what they can't do? They probably can't run. They probably can't be on a bike, but they might be able to get on a rower with one leg off the side of the rower on like a slider or something or a skateboard and do one-legged rowing. They might be able to do an arm ergometer. They might be able to do a uh, ski erg. They might be able to do a punching bag, you know, like a speed bag type thing. 
there are a lot of different options. Assault bike. Yeah, a lot of different options. Okay. Uh, same thing with low back pain. Maybe the rower is not the choice for them, but they could be on a, a recumbent bike or they could do elliptical or they could walk on a treadmill. What you're trying to do is, again, meet those physical activity guideline requirements, but you're going to pick the mode based on what they can do, what their preferences are, and then pick the volume and intensity based on their current fitness levels and resources. So people are like, should I do high intensity interval training or should, should I do low intensity steady state? And it's like, why not both? approaches from both ends. I think in general, people who are keyed up on resistance training probably don't need to do any additional high intensity interval training. Whereas people who are untrained, why not do both? They're relatively untrained in both. Let's approach this from both ends. This sort of like you're coming at things from a lower and slower standpoint and then higher and harder, faster and harder sort of standpoint. You meet in the middle, you get the best of both worlds. But ultimately, it's going to come down to preferences. If somebody who's relatively untrained was like, I don't want to do high intensity interval training at all. I'm like, great. Well, we can still meet the physical activity guidelines via moderate uh, uh, aerobic activity. Or on the other hand, if somebody was like, I only want to do high intensity interval training. I'm like, well, sounds like you're into pain, but that's cool. <laughs> like, We'll only do it through vigorous intensity uh, activity. Either way, it works fine. Again, you still need to pick this like proximity to failure or how hard it should be and describe the progression. So typically what I'll have people do uh, is start doing brisk walks if they can walk 20 to 30 minutes. I call it RP6. I describe it that they can speak in short sentences, but they can't sing. Their heart rate should be somewhere depending on their age and their current fitness level somewhere in that 115 to 130 beats per minute sort of range, plus or minus five each way. Uh, and again, I'll send them on the way two to three times a week. It should be at RP6. Uh, and then the progression would be, I want you to be able to walk further in that same period of time with your heart rate being the same effectively you're allowing the cardiorespiratory fitness adaptations to occur and then you can walk further because you walked faster or if you're on a bike same sort of thing how much time how much ground can you cover in 30 minutes 40 minutes or during a interval type workout all of those things would work you just again you want it to be the same level of hardness uh, and i think in general most low intensity steady state stuff should be done RP six, seven and most high intensity interval, uh, type stuff should be done in RP eight to nine, eight to 10. It's really hard to go all the way to failure and do multiple repeat stuff sets. And most people won't do that. Won't tolerate it. But for sports performance, I could see some, uh, case for that. I just rarely program it because most of the people that I train are not there yet. Uh, you know, yeah, do sprints 20 seconds at RP 10. And people are like, I, it's not hard enough. And I'm like, cause you're not going hard enough. It, I, I hear that all the time. People be like, I can't do 20 seconds at 10 on a rower. It feels easy. And I'm like, have you tried rowing faster? <laughs> like a, a cadence of like 50 strokes per minute or something like that with a dampener put up. Cause like th it, that's going to get you there. But if, if they can't, they can't really generate that amount of intensity. It's like, well, maybe this is a bad mode uh, to select for them. It would be like programming singles for a novice and expecting them to get a sufficient dose out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not, it's not going to work. So my, I tend towards most, again, most people being in the lifting scene, you don't really need a lot of hit, uh, right off the bat. I would just do more low intensity, steady state, again, build this big base. You can do aerobic intervals. So anything over like 30 to 40 seconds is going to be almost primarily, primarily, uh, aerobic type stuff. And you can do intervals on that with like a one to one to one to three work to rest ratio somewhere in there for actual no, you know, no joke sprints. You're talking about like five to 20 seconds of effort 
with like 5x, 6x, 7x rest periods. So when people are like, I did a minute on, minute off, that's my high intensity interval training. I'm like, well, that definitely qualifies as like vigorous intensity, aerobic activity, but you're not doing anaerobic sprints. You're doing aerobic intervals and it can feel hard. I just don't know that it's actually selecting for the adaptations that you actually want if you really did want the anaerobic stuff. And further, I don't know that there's any better health benefits to that <laughs> just doing 30 minutes of steady state. It may be more palatable for somebody to think about as intervals, but like whatever. The way I always frame it to people as far as time goes that most individuals understand these days is there's that appreciable drop in noise in the fan if somebody's on the assault bike right around 18 to 23 seconds when aerobic starts kicking in and it'll be this like I'm like hey your intervals shouldn't be any longer than that period yeah 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 so I, I think in general like again you can do it's similar to resistance training you can pick any mode that the person wants to do based on their preferences has access to and then you decide on how you're going to actually program it, whether it's sustained steady state stuff, aerobic intervals, anaerobic intervals, again, based on what they want to do and what they are currently capable of doing, ascribe some sort of level of hardness so that they know like, here's a time where I, uh, you know, you, so you can show progression. Um, and then that progression is going to show up on its own clock. It's very similar to resistance training. So this last part of this, we said that the biggest deficits for people actually recommending exercise in the healthcare setting, particularly physical therapists, lack of uh, behavior change counseling, the sort of training, lack of knowledge about evidence-based exercise prescription. We just talked about that. And the last part is going to be lack of personal experience. So how do we get more physical therapists to actually exercise? What's, what's your take on that? How do we get more PTs to actually train? I think it should be part of how schools are designed as well. Because if there is no space or, or no equipment with which to teach it, you know, in, in school, you're still required to learn the parameters for ultrasound as a therapeutic agent. And there's no evidence for that whatsoever. And for the amount that one of those or probably four or five of those machines, if you're going to adequately teach it in class, you could definitely get a couple power racks and some bars, but you have to have the space to put that in. And until we're accounting for that environmental setup as part of the actual curriculum. And I also think, you know, what's the joke? It's like the evidence never moves forward. People just retire. And it, it, there, there does need to be kind of a changing of the guard because 20 years ago, we were so much more, I can feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up, neuromuscularly based to where everything needed to be moving in this quote unquote proper way. So no one was talking about trying to find the adequate load or realizing that technique is a spectrum. And until we can start showing students that it's okay to pick up heavy stuff, it's okay to you know go run a marathon or pick whatever great feat the human body is capable of, then how are they really gonna be inspired to have that same level of curiosity to go try it themselves? Yeah. Yeah. And then, then they're going to learn the exercise prescription part, at least part of it through personal experience and then, and likely to have a keener interest in learning more as it applies to themselves. And then, I mean, if we think about like every great coach, like how do they become a great coach? It's like, well, they kind of lived it for a little bit. They may not have been the highest level performer, but they were interested enough to figure out like, well, how can I be the best version of myself? And they kind of had to 
figure this I think stuff for the out. Most part, you be, you are a highly interested mediocre athlete. <laughs> um, yeah. if, if you look at historically the best coaches and there's probably something to be said for uh, being self-aware enough to realize you're not going to be elite. So you start becoming more a student of the game than just someone trying to dominate the game. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. All right, man, this has been, this has been good. I think uh, we'll, we'll see what the, uh, what the crowd thinks when I uh, <laughs> deliver this, hopefully not to, uh, I'm not meant to bash PTs. I just think there's a, robust opportunity for physical therapists to be involved in exercise promotion, specifically resistance training promotion. Um, you know, because you think about it, uh, a typical physical therapy session, you get to assess the individual, their current level of function, uh, figure out some, an entry point for them to start exercising that affected area. They got the whole rest of the body. You can do the same thing and you can show them how to do it in the clinic to some extent, depending on your resources and what they can and, and will do. And you could set them up for success. I just feel like if anybody is is primed to really move the needle forward, it's going to be PTs, and I just like to see more of them doing it. Uh, I do want more doctors to do it. Don't get me wrong. I I, <laughs> I want all of it, but I think PTs are in a great position to potentially do this, and hopefully they respond uh, positively. You know, I think the needle is moving in the right direction. It's just obviously not at the uh, pace that most of us would like for it to be. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that's a wrap on episode 223, strength training in the rehab setting and beyond. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please uh, go visit our sponsors, General Leathercraft, Viore. Also, again, this is the last week uh, for the Load Women Month. Uh, so if you're interested uh, in that, make sure you check out the link in the description below. If you want to join us in any of our seminars, that's also linked in the description. And uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. So we keep bringing you a latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you.